Welcome to You News, the podcast using the power of Univision to bring the news that matters to you in English. Today is Friday, June 19th. I'm Andrea Linares. These are today's headlines. The state of California now mandating the use of masks in public as more than 20 states see a spike in new coronavirus cases. Just 24 hours after a landmark Supreme Court ruling upholding DACA, the president suggesting he will once again try to deport the nearly 700,000 Dreamers right here in the U.S. The Atlanta ex-officer charged in the shooting death of Rayshard Brooks now in custody as the Fulton County prosecutor discusses what comes next in the case. This and much more today on U News, transmitting live from our newsroom in Miami. In Atlanta, ex-officer Garrett Rolfe, charged with the murder of Rayshard Brooks, spent the night in jail and appeared in court today. Meanwhile, the other officer involved, Devin Brosnan, who was on the scene, spent only a short time there before bonding out. Both men are facing charges in this incident, which has sent shockwaves through the city's police force. 27-year-old Garrett Rolfe turning himself in Thursday. He's fighting 11 charges, including murder for the fatal shooting of Rayshard Brooks. Officer Devin Brosnan accused of aggravated assault, turning himself in as well and later released on a $50,000 bond as seen here. His attorney, Don Samuel, surprised with the charges filed. You know, you're going to charge a police officer who's giving CPR and putting anticoagulant <laughs> in, the, in the wounds and compression bandages? You say, well, you didn't do it fast enough. We're going to charge you with a felony for that? Come on. You know, GBI's not going to support that. While a memorial is growing at the Wendy's restaurant where Brooks was killed, support is also growing for both of the officers charged in his death. The Georgia law enforcement organization raising at least $250,000 to help pay for legal fees. Meanwhile, there are growing concerns about morale and staff shortages hanging over the Atlanta Police Department. Many are calling out. Morale is down with police departments, and I think ours is down tenfold. This has been a very tough few weeks in Atlanta. Georgia law allows a person to use deadly force only if he or she reasonably believes that such force is necessary to prevent death or great bodily injury to himself or herself or a third person. And the Atlanta Police Policy Manual, which was just updated last week, says that an officer can use deadly force when he or she reasonably believes that the suspect possesses a deadly weapon or any object. Ex-officer Rolf could face the death penalty if convicted. The DA responding to criticism of the charges and possible sentencing. We're not asking for the death penalty. Uh, we simply cited that because statutorily, that is one of the possible sentences. Uh, but we're not seeking the death penalty. I don't think anyone rationally expected that we would ask for the death penalty in this case. By the way, Joe Biden has opened up a 12-point lead over President Trump in the latest Fox News national poll as a majority of voters say they disapprove of the president's handling of the protests in response to the police killing of George Floyd. The survey finds Biden at 50 percent and Trump at 38 percent. Trump appears to be dragged down in the Fox News poll by his response to the civil unrest over police treatment of African-Americans. Let's now go to Charles Zeldin. He's a political science professor at Nova Southeastern University. Professor Zeldin, 
Welcome. Happy Friday. And let's get right to it. As we all know, it's been a rocky week for the president. The Supreme Court dealing him two blows. First, protections for LGBTQ employees. And then just yesterday, refusing to eliminate DACA for now. What do you make of all this? Well, it, it, it goes to show that when presidents appoint people to the court, uh, once they're up there, they often follow their own mind. Um, in the case of, of Gorsuch, uh, uh, with the uh, gay rights uh, initiative, and Roberts, he's an institutionalist. The chief justice really doesn't want to put his court in a bad position. So there are times he will he will vote uh, for stability. And that's pretty much what these were, votes for stability. Uh, they're pretty much upholding the status quo. Support for the president is dropping in some key swing states. Let's go ahead and take a look at the numbers first. With former Vice President Joe Biden leading in all six 2020 battleground states, so what exactly is behind these numbers? Well, the, the president is facing two big challenges. The first is a Katrina moment, which is how is he handling COVID-19? And to most people, they don't think he's doing a particularly good job. At the very least, he's not providing the leadership we expect out of presidents. Uh, and then on top of that, there's the the the, the protests, uh, Black Lives Matter, uh, the issue of race, which has never been a strong suit for him. Uh, what's happening is that he's not losing his core supporters on this issue, but he's losing independence. He's losing individuals who are bothered by overt racism and who are being now forced to face up to just how systemic racism is in our society. And it doesn't work well for the president politically in that situation. Professor Zeldin, we're still five months away from the election, meaning anything can happen, a lot can happen. The African-American vote yeah. will be key in this election in November. Where does Trump stand with that voting bloc in particular? Well, he usually polls somewhere less than 10% of the black vote. And the question there is, will they show up and vote? Um, given current events, I suspect we're going to see a very large turnout from the African-American community. And I suspect we're going to see most of it uh, vote Democratic. Uh, this is, this is a, a, a transition moment in this country, especially for uh, uh, people of color. And this is their moment to try and bring about change. And as was stated in the clip just before I came on, sometimes you vote for someone, sometimes you vote against. In voting against Trump, they're voting for the opportunity to get a better America as they see it. And uh, I think that's what's going to happen. Now let's talk about social media and its impact also on the elections. Twitter and Facebook pushed back on the president this week. Facebook, um, for one hand, taking down one of the president's ads for violating its policies on organized hate. And Twitter also labeling a video Trump tweeted as manipulated media. How is this impacting the president's messaging on these social media platforms? Well, on the one hand, he he. He doesn't like to have this happen to him. But the reality is, 
this particular ad, the one that you're showing up on the screen, which was manipulated, it was it, it was a misuse of, of the visuals. Um, he only had to pay a small amount to get it online, but now we're talking about it, you know, nationally on the news. So he's getting free media on the topic. Now, whether that will help him or not is another matter. I, I, Trump has always been someone who believes that that uh, attention is always good. Um, but if 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 Twitter and the Facebook become much more careful about the content of his ads of his posts, uh, that's gonna that's gonna cut into his way of directly communicating to his followers, and and that's not good for him. Well, thank you so much for your time, Professor Charles Zeldin of Nova Southeastern University. Thank you for breaking down all these different topics regarding the elections. Here. Thanks so much. Meanwhile, in Milwaukee, the countdown is on. Literally, there's a billboard that says 59 days until the Democratic National Convention. And that's when Joe Biden will formally accept the Democratic presidential nomination. Officials familiar with all the planning say it'll probably happen August 20th, the last day of the convention. The event will be scaled back. And there will be a major digital component this year, too. Prepping for the convention is a little different this year, of course, and that's due to the coronavirus pandemic. But the chairman of the DNC says his team is following the guidance of public health officials. And ahead of that convention, Amy Klobuchar has removed herself from consideration to be Joe Biden's running mate. Talking to MSNBC, the Minnesota senator said the former vice president should pick a woman of color as his vice president. Klobuchar cited recent national unrest surrounding police brutality and racial injustice. She said she called Biden on Wednesday and told him a woman of color should be on the ticket. Some of the top contenders Biden could pick for vice president are California Senator Kamala Harris, Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms, and Florida Representative Val Demings. Now to the latest on the coronavirus crisis, a grim new forecast from the CDC just this morning saying deaths will hit as high as 145,000 by July 11th. And nine states will likely have more deaths in the next four weeks than they have seen in the past month. Lorraine Gassides has the latest. More than 20 states reporting an upward trend in COVID-19 cases. In California, Governor Gavin Newsom is now requiring residents statewide to wear masks. Hospitalization numbers are just starting to creep back up, uh, and I'm very concerned by what we're seeing. This comes as areas like San Diego have seen an increase in cases. County officials there pausing the economic reopening. Generally, we are seeing community outbreaks at restaurants, private businesses, uh, private residences, houses of worship, businesses, office buildings, social clubs. Uh, and in the case of these, uh, we are seeing them in a widespread uh, area throughout San Diego County. People are gathering and not using uh, facial coverings. Uh, the way that uh, COVID-19 is spread is primarily through person-to-person -person, uh, contact, and it's spread through droplet transmission. Down South Florida reporting on Friday a new daily record with more than 3,800 cases, the state's highest single-day total since the pandemic began. 
the potential for the virus to take off there uh, is very, very nerve-wracking and could have catastrophic consequences. Now New York's governor Andrew Cuomo announcing they'll consider a mandatory 14-day quarantine for travelers from the Sunshine State, just like Florida did for New Yorkers when the outbreak started. Now we're afraid they're bringing the virus to our state. In Montgomery, Alabama, ICUs filling up with new patients. We're never going to have to worry about a second wave because we haven't gotten out of the first wave. The City Council of Montgomery voting down a measure requiring masks in public, prompting the mayor to issue an executive order effectively reversing the decision. We're doing this today because it's the right thing to do. In Ohio, they're watching four counties closely after a spike in hospitalizations and the governor, Mike Dewan, issuing a warning over a rise of 4% in the number of children testing positive for COVID-19, urging parents to continue socially distancing. But despite states reporting increases in cases, the vice president making this statement on Thursday. I'm proud to report to you as the head of the White House Coronavirus Task Force, we slowed the spread. We flattened the curve. We cared for the most vulnerable and we saved lives. Adding that saving the economy and saving lives are equally important. It really isn't a choice between the health of the American people and the health of our economy. It's a choice between health and health. There are real world consequences to people uh, through the shutdowns that we've endured. And it's the reason why we're we're so grateful uh, to see states across the country now, all 50 states, safely and responsibly reopening. In Texas, there are now more than 100,000 cases across the state and Arizona, which also reported a high number of new cases on Thursday, more than 2,500. The National Guard is now on notice to possibly help if needed with contact tracing. In Miami, Lorraine Cáceres, U News. Thank you, Lorraine, for that report. In other news, President Trump said this morning he will renew efforts to end the DACA program, and that's a deferred action program protecting young immigrants from deportation. The Supreme Court rejected the administration's efforts yesterday. And in a tweet this morning, the president said this, quote, the Supreme Court asked us to resubmit on DACA. Nothing was lost or won. We will be submitting enhanced papers shortly, end quote. Meanwhile, Claudia Uceda is in Washington, D.C. and has details on what comes next for all these dreamers just one day after their historic win at the Supreme Court. Claudia, what can you tell us? That's right. Good afternoon. We are here outside of the Supreme Court with a group of dreamers who are celebrating the decision of the Supreme Court that basically is allowing yeah. them to remain yeah. in the country and to work. Now, tell me, how are you feeling today? We feel excited because this is a victory that we've been waiting for for such a long time uh, from organizers in the past. When it comes down to this, when directly impacted folks are in the in the front lines of this fight, uh, we will create change and we will win. The president is upset and he looks like he is trying to say that he will take action again. We don't know when or how, but are you afraid? No, uh, we're undocumented, we're unafraid, and we're here to stay. Uh, at the end of the day, we're going to push for our state and local officials to kick ICE and CBP out of their communities. We're going to push for permanent protections for our community. And not only that, this fight does not stop at DACA. DACA was only a temporary, temporary um, fix for us. We need permanent protections for our community, all of us. 
Now, what's next for dreamers? What's next for you? What's your message for dreamers? What are they going to do next? Well, now, now it's up to Trump to decide, right? Um, we're pushing for DHS to accept new applications. We have Andrea here who can now apply for DACA. And we're going to keep on pushing because the fight doesn't stop here. It does not stop here. We're going to keep on going. And Andrea, you have a very exciting news to share with us. Tell us a little bit of that, please. Well, now because of this ruling, I'm able to apply for DACA and many are as well. But that doesn't stop. UCIS has to you know, release a statement and make sure that we are eligible to apply now. But we don't stop here because this, the fight doesn't end here. There's so many people in our community that need to be protected. Thank you so much. And you heard it. They are not afraid and they are ready to fight. And with those words, I go back to you. The alleged murderer of a missing 19-year-old Black Lives Matter protester and a 75-year-old woman in Florida confessed to his mother about the killings. 49-year-old Aaron Glee Jr. was arrested on Sunday after police found the bodies of the two women near his Tallahassee, Florida home. Glee had already fled to Orlando on a bus before his arrest in the early hours Sunday. It's not known yet if Glee had a motive in the alleged murders. The governor of Kentucky wants Juneteenth to be a statewide holiday. Thursday, Governor Andy Beshear signed a proclamation recognizing June 19th as Juneteenth National Freedom Day. The governor says Juneteenth recognizes an important time in history. Juneteenth celebrates the end of slavery in America, specifically June 19, 1865. That was a day slaves in Texas were told they had been freed because of the Emancipation Proclamation, which had been issued by President Abraham Lincoln two years earlier. And joining us now is Connor Maxwell. He's a senior policy analyst at the Center for American Progress's race and ethnicity team. Connor, welcome to You News on this Friday. So the president this week said he made Juneteenth, quote, very famous by originally planning his Tulsa rally on what would have been today, June 19th, on this Friday. What is your reaction to this? Sure. So I think that flies in the face of uh, millions of black uh, families around the country who've long reflected and commemorated Juneteenth. Um, if the president himself is just learning about this uh, this day, uh, that reflects on um, on perhaps his education. Many Americans indeed are unaware of Juneteenth, and that's partly because it's not taught in schools. Why is that? Sure. So for decades, if not centuries, uh, the United States public school system and private school system has really neglected black history, uh, has taught a, a limited perspective of the American Revolution, the Civil War, Reconstruction, um, and, you know, and the Renaissance movement. And so, you know, it's unsurprising that teachers continue to, to neglect that history. But again, it's a history that many African-Americans grow up learning about and, and, and commemorating each year. We now know that major brands like Uber, Nike, and Target are making Juneteenth a paid holiday. How significant is this? You know, it remains to be seen. Um, it's obviously a step in the right direction. I hope that uh, the country as a whole reflects on this day. I hope that corporations, uh, you know, put, put their actions to their words and begin to make changes to create a more equitable America for everyone. 
As we were just mentioning, Tulsa is commemorating a grim anniversary today, the 1921 Black Wall Street massacre, in which a mob of white residents destroyed black-owned businesses. What is the impact of this event to this day on black wealth? Sure. So we know from Lisa Cook's research uh, that she's a professor at the University of, uh, sorry, at Michigan State University, that the Tulsa race massacre had a chilling effect on black business, black innovation and invention around the country, not just in Oklahoma. Uh, the result of that was that, you know, between uh, 1921 and uh, 1945, there were about 1,000 fewer patents filed in the United States than would have been otherwise. That's about the equivalent of a small, of a medium-sized European country. That's uh, in that's intelligence, information, inventions that will forever be lost to history. Who knows uh, where we would be today if those things had been invented then? And to this day, uh, Black Americans know that no matter how wealthy you get, how educated you get, you are still vulnerable to the the violence that comes from systemic racism in America. Well, we have run out of time, unfortunately, but I just want to thank you, Connor Maxwell of the Center for American Progress, for your time and for discussing this important part of history. Take care. Thank you. a daily newscast that speaks to you about your world in plain English. Each weekday, we partner with Hispanic America's most trusted news source to bring you the stories from home and abroad that matter to you. The Senate will turn itself into a courtroom. The private border fence is being installed. A police officer and three people were killed inside a Jewish supermarket in Jersey City. U News covers the news of your world and makes it easy to understand. Your world, your news. U News on Fusion. Welcome back to U News. An investigation by the Department of Health and Human Services has revealed shortcomings in the reporting of conditions in shelters for immigrant children. It also found hundreds of incidents of sexual misconduct go unreported. Genesis Vieira has the latest details. View of Centers for Unaccompanied Immigrant Minors, the HHS Inspector General's Office submitted the latest report on the care of children in the custody of the Refugee Settlements Office, highlighting several significant problems. Since the beginning of this administration, the neglect of these children has increased greatly. The report reveals that the system of data collection and reporting inside the shelters is inadequate, limiting the provisions of necessary attention, especially to serious incidents such as sexual abuse. If you don't report everything that is happening, how do you fix the situation and provide necessary resources? The investigation was conducted from January to July 2018 at 45 facilities where 761 incidents of sexual conduct were reported, most of which involved minors. The incidents ranged from opening the bathroom door while another child was occupying it to an employee kissing a minor. The report also notes that facilities lack control over safety measures to protect children. The Inspector General's office issued a series of recommendations to ensure that minors are better protected. The best solution is to release these children now and leave them in custody of loved ones or relatives. Reported by Dulce Castellano, I'm Genesis Vieira, U News.